Reflections on Dante's Paradiso by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 8. Okay, let's see. The question is, what were the means by which she brought Dante into a full awareness of the implication of that original meeting? That's the end of his prayer. He goes on to say, Such was my prayer, and she, far up a mountain, as it appeared to me, looked down and smiled. The second, the second application of the Beatrician magic. The first one was the greeting, the salutation, salute. And the second one was the smile. And so we're having here a recapitulation of the means by which Beatrice transformed Dante. The salutation and the smile. And what next? She turned back to the eternal fountain, never to look back at Dante again, to turn to the Godhead forever. So the salutation the smile and the turning away. The next time he meets her on the streets of Florence, she's a block away, taking an eternity to walk that block, probably, for Dante. She finally gets to him. He has bought into the heroic, to the, excuse me, to the uh, uh, romantic uh, convention of his day, which was, among the romantic poets, which was, you always pretend to love somebody other than the one you really love. Uh, so you keep that uh, special mystery about this, your true lady. Well, Dante, robust young man, he uh, found that easy enough, I guess. Well, Beatrice got wind of it. She thought, she thought he, he really did like somebody else. So when she comes, she's a robust young woman. She comes abreast of him this time. Dante holding his breath, and just as she's next to him, she looks the other way and walks on by. And Dante goes home and pours his soul out on paper again. And when she died a few years later, he understood that that was a continuation of the looking away. He understood that there was something uh, in that gesture of looking away that was part of the salvation. And he must not forget that either. And so now she turns away for the last time. Now, I want to explore that a little bit, but to try to get a sense of how Dante finally came to understand that, as what's, what's interesting is that Dante finally came to understand that as a rendition of the Christian mysteries. The parallel might be in the call of Jesus to the disciples, the arousal of their interest, uh, the mission in which they are, in which they are brought more fully into connection with him, and then the cross, in which he leaves them and goes to the Father, and the crisis that 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 three stage those three stages produce in the, in the Christian disciple. What I'd like to explore something here which is true of Dante's life I think and I think probably true of ours as well might it be 
that the truth of one's own life comes from having one's living experience overlay an underlying mythic uh, pattern by, wor- by virtue of which I can experience the true depth and meaning of my own experience. In Dante's sense, the fact that he had the Christian dispensation so inculcated into him gave him the mythological and the imaginative wherewithal to comprehend what was happening to him with respect to the Beatrice experience. He saw in the Beatrice experience the pattern that was in the mythic cult that had been inculcated in him. I use myth here very, uh, you know, even for Carl Jung aficionados, you know, you have to use this word uh, uh, carefully. <laughs> that what's imp- If that is true, if it is, if in order for us to experience the, the true depth and meaning of our own personal experience, there must underlie that experience a mythic pattern which interprets that experience for us, then a very central issue is the inculcation in us of that mythic pattern. Because it's not a cerebral, it's not an intellectual thing. One can't say, oh, I've had this experience, let me go over here and look in this book and see if there's something that matches it. It has to be visceral. It has to be... A uh, man named Dixon wrote a book called The Physiology of Faith. He says it has to be... It, it, the inculcation of the mythic pattern has to be at the level of the physiology in order to really do us any good. It can't be some mental thing that you snatch at when needed. It has to be there when it happens. Well, that's a little bit of an aside, but what's important is that Dante had this profound experience and he, he had inculcated in him a mythic pattern which gave him access to its deepest meaning. Line 93, And the holy elder said, I have been sent by prayer and sacred love to help you reach the perfect consummation of your ascent. Look around this garden, therefore, that you may, by gazing at its radiance, be prepared to lift your eyes up to the trinal ray. The queen of heaven, for whom... In whole devotion, I burn with love, will grant us every grace because I am Bernard, her faithful one. Let me read to you something that uh, one of the commentators, Vossler, says of St. Bernard. After Bernard, the influence, excuse me, after Bernard and influenced by him, the erotic note grows ever clearer in medieval mysticism. Lover-like devotion commingles with worship of Mary. Out of the growing language of the Song of Songs, out of the lighter tones of the popular love ballads and the gallant forms of knightly madrigals, new forms of religious expression take shape. And then Vossler goes on to say that Dante repudiated these, but that is, I think, demonstrably not so. What Dante did is he reinterpreted them. He doesn't repudiate them at all. Uh, The point is that Bernard had been the one who had given legitimacy to the erotic 
and had focused attention on the feminine. St. Bernard had <clears throat> was probably uh, as responsible as anyone for giving intellectual legitimacy to the devotion of Mary. And he had written uh, several tracts that were passionately devoted to Mary and that tremendously influenced Dante. When he sees Bernard, he says, again, another strange simile, as a stranger from afar, a croat, if you will, now this is not barbarians, Croatia is at the Croatia is in the is in the Christian outback. It, it, it's it's Christian, but it's it's Christian, you know, way out there on the fringes. As a stranger from afar, a croat, if you will, comes to see our Veronica, and awed by its ancient fame, can never look his fill, but says to himself, as long as it is displayed, My Lord Jesus Christ, true God, and is this then the likeness of thy living flesh portrayed? And the story you. you probably know the story of the Vale of Veronica, a, a, a piece of uh, Catholic piety that Veronica was there at the Passion and wiped, took her veil and wiped the face of Jesus and his blood and sweat left the impression on the veil. And the veil was, was uh, displayed at, at twice a year and pilgrims would come from all over to see this veil. And it was a very uh, moving experience for people, particularly, and this is why the people would come from, you know, the fringes. Dante says, And just so did I gaze on the living love of him who in this world through contemplation tasted the peace which ever dwells above. Well, um, that Bernard might be likened to the veil of Veronica, namely that the, the impression of Christ was so thoroughly imprinted on him that he was a living veil of Veronica. Dante looked up and he said it was like dawn. It was, I, he said there was a part of the rose that was like the dawn sky. You could tell that's where the light was coming. And he makes an interesting comparison. He says, and as the sky is brightest in that region where we on earth expect to see the shaft of the chariot so badly steered by Phaethon. Phaethon is the one who uh, took the reins from from Apollo and could not handle it and almost destroyed the earth. Uh, an image here of willfulness. The contrast, remember the con contrast with Callisto and her son revolving around the North Star, Mary and hers revolving around the Bethlehem Star. And now we get the contrast of willfulness uh, and the failure of willfulness. I, th I think that's the best way to understand that. So Dante looks up and sees uh, the Virgin Mary. Notice what happens when they begin to regard the Virgin. Line 139. This is the, the very end of, of this canto. Bernard seeing my eyes so fixed and burning with passion on his passion turned his own up to that height with so much love and yearning that the example of his ardor sent new fire through me, making my gaze more ardent. Now, it would be hard to pack into five lines uh, 
four in the original. It'd be harder. It'd be very difficult to pack more references to passion uh, and arousal into those lines than Dante has packed into them. Passion, passion, burning, yearning, fire, ardor. That's the tonality of what's happening here between St. Bernard and Mary, and now that has caught Dante up in it as well. Canto 32 begins, Still wrapped in contemplation, the sainted seer assumed the vacant office of instruction. Beginning with these words, I still can hear. The wound that Mary healed with balm so sweet was first dealt and then deepened by that being who sits in such great beauty at her feet. It's a beautiful tercet, I think, that second one. It's Mary and Eve. Before long, the angel Gabriel will come along and sing the Hail Mary to Mary, which begins Ave, Ave. And the medieval uh, world was, uh, was, uh, was uh, happy to make the connection between Ave and its reverse, which is Eva. And uh, so Ave and Eva have this great relationship. They are the, first, the mother of the first race and the mother of the second race. And there they are together, Eve just at the feet of Mary. Below her in the circle sanctified by the third rank of, of loves, Rachel is throned and Beatrice, Sarah, Rebecca, Judith, and she who was the great-grandmother of the singer who for his sins cried, Lord, have mercy on us. That's Ruth, uh, the great-grandmother of David who cried for mercy because of his, uh, his lusting after Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. What I'd like to do now is, if not uh, Dantean, at least Dante-esque, I think. And perhaps Dantean, it's hard to tell. One of the reasons it's hard to tell is because uh, these illusions now are so densely interwoven that to try to to tease out Dante's intention here is, is uh, I think, virtually impossible. You have, to, you have to assume that everything you can imagine he intended, he probably did. Uh, a striking feature of this is that the fall is spoken of in two stages. The wound that Mary healed was dealt and then deepened by Eve. Don't know what to make of that. The word for deepened is the, is the word punze, which is a, a version of the, of the, the verb uh, pungere, which we talked about last week, the pa past participle of which is punto, that whole thing about the punto, which is the Godhead, the point, and the piercing, which is which is the woundedness that we human beings feel. So the same verb is used for that deepening of the wound, what Charity calls the deepening of the wound, the, the penetration of the wound further. I would like to suggest, and this is what I hope will be Dante-esque at least, how it occurred to me to regard these, this two-stage wounding. 
the first stage, I think, has to be uh, the, the attempt to achieve godlikeness. The snake said to Eve, the reason he doesn't want you to eat that tree is because if you do, you will become like God. And Eve knew in some dim recesses of her being that something like God-likeness was, was on the agenda. Right? We're talking about an incarnating cosmos. In some groping way, she knew that there was something like that she was supposed to be. And so she tries to achieve God-likeness by an act of will. And it's the attempt to achieve God-likeness by an act of will, which is another perversion of the incarnational thrust. So she reached and grabbed the fruit and ate it. I think of those lines in Faust, uh, in Goethe's Faust Part One, where Mephistopheles is signing the students' uh, annual, his album, and uh, because the student's so taken by this Mephistopheles character, and as he signs it, uh, Mephistopheles sort of speaks an aside to the audience, and in one translation it goes like this: "Just follow the old advice, and my cousin the snake." There'll come a time when your godlikeness will make you quiver and quake. <laughs> that is, again, evil can only pervert what's the truth. And the, if the truth is an incarnating cosmos, the way, the way that the fallen angel can twist that is to say, well, how about a little godlikeness? It's... It, it has a tone. It has a feeling tone to it that's similar, right? How about a little godlikeness? And so Eve goes for it. So I'm I'm suggesting that the first wound is the attempt to achieve godlikeness by an act of will. And the second wound, the next thing that happens, is that Adam and Eve begin to regard their sexuality with suspicion. Right? They reach for the fig leaf. That is to say, this will that reaches for God-likeness is connected somehow to passion and ardor and desire and sexuality and all of that. And so the, the, the deepening of that wound is some confusion over the passions, some suspicion about the passions, some sense that the passions have to be, we can't trust the passions. Got to keep them down. Got to cover them up. It'll get us in trouble. What got us in trouble was not the passions. It was the sense that you could grab God-likeness. See? that it could be initiated from the human point of view. What's being compared here is Mary and Eve, the mother of the first race and mother of the second. Eve reaches by an act of will for godlikeness, 
And Mary, at the Annunciation, says, be it done according to thy will. That's the difference. The real incarnation was not an act of willfulness, but an act of willingness. Humility. Humility. Mary, Eve was willful, Mary was willing. And the incarnation then begins. So again, a false or flawed incarnational impulse and then one that was perfect. An angel comes along and begins to sing the Hail Mary. Dante notices this. But he's perplexed by it. And as he watches this hymn to the Virgin by this angel, Dante says to St. Bernard, Line 103, who is that angel who with such desire gazes into the eyes of our sweet queen so wrapped in love he seems to be a fire? The language in Italian is erotic language. Iman in, in amorato. The English enamored is weak compared to the implication in Italian. It's what happens to lovers. It is aroused. Dante is saying to St. Bernard, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) Uh, Who was that angel that was singing the Hail Mary aroused? Who's... What? Who was that? And in answering, St. Bernard says, line 109... As much as angel or soul can know of exaltation, gallantry, and poise, there is in him, and we would have it so, for he's the one who brought Mary the message of the Annunciation, namely Gabriel. So we have an allusion here to the Annunciation. Uh, The allusion is one that linguistically is the language of eros, and the language of romantic love. Notice the word gallantry. The gallantry was a, was a a quality associated with the romantic love movement and the romantic mythology and the romantic poets, uh, the knightly court romance. So these all these things are being associated here with this angel's song to Mary. So a great aroused, uh, ardent prayer to Mary. Next we have uh, the great, the great uh, patricians, or that's what how they referred to. There's an emphasis here on the uh, on the great the two fathers, Adam and Peter, the father of the first race, and in some symbolic sense, the father of the shepherd of the second race, or the Archetypal shepherd, the second ray. The father figure, the second ray. And Adam is referred to as the one who had unruly appetite. And Peter and John the Baptist and Moses and so on. And, and then we get introduced to the various souls, to the, uh, the, the Old and New Testament uh, dispensations and so on. Uh, 
And Bernard ends the canto by saying, Remember, grace must be acquired through prayer. Therefore, I will pray that blessed one who has the power to aid you in your need, see that you follow me with such devotion, your heart adheres to every word I say. And with those words, the saint began to pray. Now, we would naturally want to read the last canto of the Divine Comedy very carefully. But if for some reason we didn't, hadn't remembered to do that, Dante told us to do it in the last words of the Canto 32. Because St. Bernard said to Dante the Pilgrim, I want you to pay attention to every word I say in this prayer, particularly in this prayer. And, uh, and then he began to pray. So the next canto opens up with that prayer, and we've been told, pay attention to every word. Before we get to Canto 33, Jung wrote something called The Answer to Job, and the implication was that Job was uh, impervious to a full interpretation until our time, and now we can, we're in a position to interpret Job. And the answer to Job was Jesus, and the interpretation that Jung gave it was one in which God is divided. Sebastian Moore, English Benedictine, gave us, he didn't entitle it this, but he gave us something that could be called an answer to Oedipus. The implication was that Oedipus couldn't be understood until our age, and now we can have the wherewithal to understand it. And the answer to Oedipus is Jesus. And the insight into divinity that comes from this reinterpretation is that God is not divided. So before we get into, I want to quote Sebastian Moore at the end of Canto 33, and I'd like to quote a passage uh, from him at the beginning. What is the meaning of, sec of our sexuality? And now he looks back anthropologically. The first answer was that it is a mystery into which we are tribally initiated under maternal auspices. The second answer was that it was a theme for personal self-discovery by men, parentheses, Oedipus breaking free from the old taboo structure, in parentheses, with women as helpers, the dominance of man succeeding the dominance of woman. The third answer is that at the end of the road of self-discovery taken by Oedipus, there is our relatedness to God, in whose kingdom man and woman are part of each other, the model of dominance giving way at last to that of friendship. This is the third age prefigured by Jesus. In the end, the perp excuse me. In the end, the problem of sexuality, of an existence at once spiritual and earthbound, is the problem of God. Only in the experience of being created can we be totally at one with our sexuality. This may have taken all these millennia. Excuse me. It may have taken all these millennia to discover this truth. 
We shall not be at one with ourselves as sexual beings until we come into a new consciousness of our createdness. Well, that's an appropriate introduction to Canto 33. We bring in another... We bring in another flawed but interesting incarnational thrust. This time Oedipus. Callisto represented one. Eve represented one. This is outside of Dante, the Oedipal one, but it's but Sebastian Moore suggests it. Oedipus broke the molds and became a redeemer figure. Oedipus at Colonus is a story of a of a great one who violated the taboo, condemned the violator of the taboo, and suffered the punishment himself and became, as a result of that, a source of redemption for his people. His violation of the incest taboo was unconscious and blatant. And Sebastian Moore sees him as inaugurating an age which uh, is the predecessor to the age that Jesus inaugurates. Oedipus could have said his, his mother and his wife was Jocasta. Of Jocasta it could be said that Jocasta was the wife of her son. Here's how Dante begins. And that would be an incarnational thrust inadequate to the real needs of the Incarnation. Canto 33 begins, Vergine Madre Figlia del Tuo Figlio, Virgin Mother, Daughter of Thy Son. Some more thoroughgoing reversal of everything. Virgin Mother, Daughter of Thy Son. Humble beyond all creatures and more exalted, predestined turning point of God's intention. Thy merit so ennobled human nature that its divine creator did not scorn to make himself the creature of his creature. The great mystery of the incarnation is throbbing in this canto. Notice that it was Mary's merit that allowed the incarnation to take place. Perfectly willing, perfectly humble, that allowed the incarnation to take place. The incarnation, the incarnational impulse was there all along, as we know from the stories that we consulted this morning. Callisto in the pagan world, or, or let's say Zeus or Joe, Eve, Oedipus, others. Only in Mary did it find a perfectly willing receptacle. Thy merit so ennobled human nature that its divine creator did not scorn to make himself the creature of his creature. That's the mystery of the incarnation. I want to read you two other translations of that. The first is Charles Williams. You are she who has so ennobled human nature that its worker did not disdain to become its work. My favorite is the Louis Biancoli translation. You are she who so ennobled human nature that its maker did not disdain to become himself what it was making. Now, however our image of the Godhead will be altered by our understanding of evolution, 
these lines will not soon become antiquated. You are she who so ennobled human nature that its maker did not disdain to become himself what it was making. The mystery of the incarnation. Dante says, line 46, I, who neared the goal of all my nature, the actual word in Italian is all my desire, felt my soul at the climax of its yearning suddenly as it ought grow calm with rapture. Mandelbaum's translation of this, I think, is to the point. And I, who now was nearing him, who is the end of all desires, the fini, not the end in that desire ceases, but the culmination, the conclusion, the goal of all desires. As I ought, I lifted my longing to its ardent limit. So Dante's ardor, passion, desire, longing is not lost or sublimated at the end of the paradisal journey. It is lifted to its utmost. He is, he is more ardent, more desiring, more longing than ever before. What I saw, excuse me, what then I saw is more than tongue can say. Our human speech is dark before the vision. The ravaged memory swoons and falls away. As one who sees in dreams and wakes to find the emotional impression of his vision still powerful while its parts fade from his mind, just so am I. Having lost nearly all the vision itself, while in my heart I feel the sweetness of it yet distill and fall. So in the sun the footprints fade from snow. On the wild wind that bore the tumbling leaves, the Sibyl's oracles were scattered so. Remember, the Sibyl wrote the, wrote the truth, the, the oracular truths, on the leaves and spread them out on the floor of her, of her hovel. And then when somebody wanted to come to find the truth, she would open the door and the wind would come in and all the leaves would be scattered. And in order to get at the Sibyl's truth, we have to scramble around and take these discrete uh, separate, isolated uh, integers of the mystery and try to arrange them in some pattern. And this is Dante's image for the attempt to arrive at that wholeness piece by piece. Can't be done. So he prays that, that God will give him the memory of that moment so that he may give it to humanity. Make thou my tongue so eloquent it may of all thy glory speak a single clue to those who follow me in the world's day. For by returning to my memory somewhat and somewhat sounding in these verses, thou shalt show man more of thy victory. And he does, he is flooded then with memory, just enough to tell us what it was. I saw within its depth how it conceives all things in a single volume bound by love of which the universe is the scattered leaves. This is some other way of gathering that all. All things in a single volume bound by love. The gravitational force of the cosmos is love. I saw within its depths how it conceives all things in a single volume bound by love of which the universe is the scattered leaves. Substance, accident, 
and their relations so fused that all I could, all I, I say could do no more than yield a glimpse of that bright revelation. And then there's this beautiful thing. Remember in Canto 30, he said, I saw, I saw, I saw. Here at the ultimate vision, he says, I think I saw. It's a beautiful concession and a testimony to Dante's honesty. I think I saw the universal form that binds these things. For as I speak these words, I feel my joy swell and my spirits warm. That's how he knows, because when he says it, he feels that thing happen to him, which happens to you when, you're, when the Spirit is speaking through you. And then the strangest simile. Twenty-five centuries since Neptune saw the Argo's keel have not moved all mankind recalling that adventure to such awe as I felt in an instant. What a marvelous thing. The beauty of that image and the, and the utter genius of its placement here is, I think, this. Neptune lolling around in the bottom of the sea, one of the gods of the cyclical order, expecting the same old thing to keep on happening. There he is, lolling Nothing's going to change. Everything going on as it always has been. Glances up and sees the bottom of a ship. And it is the ship of Jason out in quest of the golden fleece. What he sees is the first hint of human appetite human desire, human longing. And he's stunned by it. What, what we're put in touch with here symbolically by Dante is the beginning of the human journey, the longing, the God longing in the human world. And you, you're sh we're shown here this... this, uh, this Deity lolling at the bottom of the ocean, not expecting this, and suddenly the human experiment in all of that, that, that drive, that longing, right at the threshold where Dante is going to show us the culmination of that longing. So he says, I was as awed in an instant as we, as, as we've all, as everybody has been awed since since Neptune was first awed by that human longing. And he is now awed because he is discovering not its, not its origin, but its destination. This is where it's all leading. He says, rather, line 112, rather as I... As I grew worthier to see, the more I looked, the more unchanging semblance appeared to change with every change in me. Barbara Reynolds, who picked up the Sayers translation when Dorsey Sayers died, translates that tercet this way. As my sight by seeing learned to see, the transformation which in me took place transformed the single changeless form for me. 
That is to say, it isn't God that's changing. It is that my ability to perceive the divine changes. And as it changes, my experience of the divine changes. The divine is changeless. But I grow in my capacity. And Dante makes the point, I must not interpret that as a changing deity, but as a, as a growing capacity on my part to experience that deity. Three circles of light, here comes the Trinity. Three circles of light, three in color, but one in space, or one in circumference, Charity has it, one dimension with three colors. And it's the second color, the second aureole, which is the, which is the Christ, the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, that so fascinates Dante and that and Canto concludes, all but concludes, on that fascination with the incarnation. That second aureole which shone forth in thee conceived as a reflection of the first or which appeared so to my scrutiny seemed in itself and of its own coloration to be painted with man's image. Ah, that's the thing that's the great mystery. And Dante says, I looked at that, intensely looked at that to try to figure out that. Like a geometer wholly dedicated to squaring the circle, but who cannot find, think as he may, the principle indicated, so did I study the supernal face. I yearn to know just how our image merges into that circle and how it finds its place. How That's what he wants to know, the incarnation. And how are we, what, what is our relationship to that? But mine were not the wings for such a flight. Yet, as I wished... The truth I wished for came, cleaving my mind in such a great flash of light. If you don't mind, I'm going to switch now instead of quoting one and then quoting another. I'm going to switch to the Barbara Reynolds translation for reasons I'll explain to you in a minute. High fantasy lost power and here broke off. Yet... As a wheel moves smoothly, free from jars, my will and my desire were turned by love, the love that moves the sun and other stars. Charity says, my instinct and intellect, and I understand he's trying to introduce this idea to the modern mind, but I think it's better to stay with what it literally means, my will and my desire. If we were experiencing Divine Comedy for the first time in Italian, the last three lines would leave us breathless. This great quandary over the Incarnation, and he said, suddenly it, a, a flash hit me. And from then on, there was no distinction between my will and my desire. That was the great accomplishment. His desire and his will, remember he has hung on to this desire all the way along and now will and desire are the same thing because love has bound them together in La Vita Nuova when it all started he saw Beatrice he went home he poured his soul out Love appeared to him, the God love, Amor, appeared to him and spoke to him and said these words. 
I am the center of a circle to which all parts of the circumference are equal, but with you it is not so. And now at the end of the Paradiso, it is so. His will and his desire are indistinguishable. What does that mean? That one's will and one's desire are indistinguishable. It means that the way we typically use the will is no longer necessary. Usually we use the will, one, to move us into action when we don't feel moved. But if will and desire are the same thing, desire performs that function. And secondly, we use will to control desire so that it doesn't go off in the wrong direction. But if now desire is perfectly liberated from that need, you see, Dante has redeemed desire or he's had it redeemed for him. So I'd like to read Sebastian Moore. Sebastian Moore talks about a terrible split in us human beings, which split results in all our funny business, including evil. And it is the split between desire and what he calls control. He says, This split between desire, heavily reinforced when sexual experience begins, and the need for control, heavily reinforced in its turn, in reaction to the newly awakened desire. We could use here, for his word control, the word will, because that's usually the way we use will. So let me just read what he says about it. This consideration of, of this split leads us off on what may appear to be a vast digression until our, sec our sexual experience appears to us as awakening in us that loneliness which we cannot relieve in each other, that loneliness which only God can relieve. Our sexual awakening awakes us to a loneliness that we try to relieve in others and can only be relieved in God. And here's what Moore says about resolving that split, which Dante has done here. The unsplit self has an unsplit God. His God image is whole. There is no trace of the God of desire as opposed to and so opposed by the God of control. The God of desire fills the whole soul with his, her presence. The will of this God, what we think of as the control side of God, is totally obeyed out of desire. Instead of a God who is said to love us but threatens us with punishment, the normal God of religion, we have a God who wholly and only desires the fulfillment of our desire. Jesus is the person for whom the God of desire is absolutely to be trusted, can be totally invested in, is not hedged in by the God of being on the right side, the God of control. Well, I read it because it's Dante-esque in its understanding of this resolution of the tension between will and control, I mean will and desire. And Dante had, as he tried to plumb the depths of the incarnation, he had this revelatory experience which 
which made his will, his, excuse me, his desire perfectly reliable. He now knew that all of that desire is ultimately desire for God. And it is, and is the central source of energy in an incarnating universe. Eliot wrote his own Paradiso, the Four Quartets, and he ends his Paradiso in a way that we can, once we've read the end of Dante's, recognize as one that has been instructed by Dante. For Eliot, as, as for Dante, fire is passion and energy, uh, ardor, desire, and the rose is heaven, the place of, of the Godhead. So Eliot, Eliot's conclusion to his Paradiso is, a, is an apt conclusion to our study of Dante. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Remember, Dante goes back and recapitulates La Vita Nuova and the whole thing, and he sees the pattern as essentially the same. Through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning, at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, I love that little phrase, and the children in the apple tree. It is such a compassionate understanding of our human condition and of the fall and everything else. And the children in the apple tree. Not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. It's a quote from Juliana of Norwich. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. Dante said, love caused my will and my desire to become indistinguishable in this heavenly vision. And Eliot says, the fire and the rose are one. That fire of desire is one with the heavenly rose. It's an absolutely Dantean understanding of human longing. This concludes Reflections on Dante's Paradiso. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, 
Thank you for your interest in our work.